Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I got to thinking about this series, and I'm really excited about uh, where we're going to be, especially uh, starting uh, next Sunday. A couple of ser- the sermons in this series, we're going to just actually take a passage and go through it in how to study a passage of Scripture. So we're just going to look at a, a text and then go through all the steps of it. I'll, I'll show you how to go through some steps of asking the right questions when you're looking at a text to maybe help you to study a little bit more. But, um, you know, we talk about the, the Bible being a book without error, and uh, that is very important uh, Having written a couple of books and in the process of trying to write the third book in the Refresh series right now, uh, we've, we've had some pretty tight deadlines. Uh, the Power of Desperation, which comes out uh, May 3rd, is that right, Jim? Something like that. Power of Desperation, which comes out May 3rd, we had a deadline of September of 2008, right? And then I had to get the Power of Persistence, which is the second book done by March First, and I have to get the power of surrender done by June first. So in less than a year, I've had to write three 200-page books. Now, trust me, you can ask Stephanie because she does my editing and stuff for me. She runs the first edits. Trust me when I say the first draft is not the last one. I'll read it, I'll reread it, I'll change it, I'll take something out, I'll put something in. Terry will read it and she'll say, you know, did you think about the story about whatever? And I'm, oh, that's a good story. Let's put that one in there. So when I'm, I'm, when I'm writing, I'm in a constant process of writing and improving and trying to say uh, what I need to say and what I want to say uh, in, in, the, in the whole book writing process. And I'm learning uh, how to do that and hopefully not doing as many massive revisions as I have done in previous times. The great thing about the Bible is God didn't finish it up and say, you know what, I wish I'd left a couple of things out. And he didn't finish it up and say, that's not exactly the way I wanted to say that. I mean, God said what he wanted to say and he got it right the first time. That's what's incredible about the scriptures. You don't have to doubt, is this really what God meant? Is this really what God said. And so I want to ask you to take your Bibles tonight and uh, I want you to look at 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. And we're going to look at several um, passages tonight. Uh, Toward the end, we'll get into even more. We'll be in some Old and some New Testament. But 2 Timothy 2.15 is Paul's instructions to Timothy. And sometimes you will read that and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. He's writing to a preacher. And so I don't have to worry about what he's saying to a preacher because that, that doesn't have application to me. I sit in the pew. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, there's two little phrases I want you to see because they apply to all of us. First of all is be diligent or be zealous, be passionate, be focused. Don't, don't handle the word of God haphazardly. Don't handle it flippantly. Don't just look at it and say, well, you know, 
If God's got something to say to me, he can hit me over the head with a ball-peen hammer and tell me what he wants to say. You, you are to be diligent because one day you're going to be inspected by God over how you have handled his word. That's why James says, be careful that not many of you become teachers because you're doubly accountable. You know, I, in, I've been in ministry long enough to have people say, well, you know, if I was a preacher, I'd do. Well, good. If you want to stand before God and be doubly accountable, go ahead. But, you know, you have to think twice before you say, well, I think or I feel because I realize that every time I preach, I am held doubly accountable. That I need to accurately handle what God says in his word, which means I can't make it say what I want it to say. Nor can I soften it up so that it makes some people feel better about themselves than God wants them to feel about themselves. It means I can't say it the way I want to say it, what I want to say, how I want to say it. It means I've got to say what God says. And I'm merely the spokesperson to deliver the mail. My job is not to write the mail. My job is to deliver the mail. My, my job is not to cook the food. The food's already been cooked. My job is to serve the table. And that's what I'm supposed to do. And so he talks about, I want you to focus on this second phrase, accurately handling the word of God, accurately handling the word of God. Now, when we talk about revelation, and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what that accurately handling the word of God means. When we talk about revelation, let me give you a definition of it. Revelation is a supernatural work of God. It is a supernatural work of God in which he communicates divine truth. It is a supernatural work of God in which he communicates divine truth to man that man could not otherwise understand or know. We could not otherwise understand or know. That's why it's a revelation. It is revealing something. It is an unveiling. The word implies an unveiling. It is a taking off of the cover of the blinders, God revealing himself to us. God spoke to Moses. God spoke to Joshua. God spoke through the prophets. God manifested himself. He revealed himself in his deeds and in his words. Now, how do I know if somebody is preaching the truth? How do I know that my Sunday school teacher is teaching me accurately the word of God? How do I know when I watch somebody on television that they are preaching the word of God without apology? Because there are many people than in any setting that can take a text and depart from it. We know just pull a text out and build a whole theology on it and not taking the text in the context, not just in the context of what, by the way, about 90% of theological error would be handled if people read the verse before the verse that they're using as a text and read the verse after the verse they're using as a text. And not only that, but they read it in the concept of the whole chapter and then the whole book and in the context of the book, in the context of where it is in the scripture and in the context of the whole message of the Bible. So the Bible doesn't just pick up and just randomly say something. It is all within a context of what God is trying to say to us. So God is revealing something to us. And so because he's revealing something to us, 
you know, you can have people say, well, you know, I was, I was sitting at home and God spoke to me and he showed me this. And, and, and how do you know that he's telling the truth? How do you know that he's rightly dividing the word of God? There's, there's a great new book out. It's an update of an older book, but it's a great new book out uh, by Hank Hanegraaff called Christianity in Crisis. And he deals with this misapplication of Scripture by some of the popular preachers of our day. Because the reality is if you got money, you can get on TV. And just because you got money and you can get on TV doesn't mean you're saying, thus saith the Lord. And there's a lot of stuff out there that is confusing people and giving them false hopes that are not based in Scripture. Promises that were made to Israel that were not given to the church. And we need to understand and discern and learn from those things. And so when Paul says accurately handle, here's what he means. He means, first of all, plowing a straight furrow. It is plowing a straight furrow. It is it is cutting a straight line. When, when you go by, you, you don't have to drive far in South Georgia to, to see where a field has been plowed. But when you see a field that's been plowed, the farmer's not doing this. He's doing it in rows. I mean, when you look down a cornfield and you see corn, it's a straight furrow. It's plowed and it's in a straight line. If it makes a turn, it makes a straight line turn. It doesn't just go whenever and wherever. He's, he's just saying that you cut a straight line. It is cutting a straight board or sewing a straight seam. Now, some of you ladies still sew. You don't want to make a dress and the seam on the back of it look like you know, you were bobbing up and down in 20-foot waves outside of Panama City while you were sewing that. You want a straight line. You want a straight seam. You want a straight board. You know, if, if you're building a house or you've got somebody building a house for you, and they say, hey, you know, here's a house, and, and here's, here's this wall, and all of a sudden you see it. You know, there's a, there's a piece of a sheetrock, and it's like cut here, and then it just kind of comes in like there, and you've got a gap like this and says, we can fill that in. You don't want to just fill that in. What are you going to fill it in with? Why don't you just cut a straight line so it matches, so you can seam it correctly and it matches up. It means to cut a straight road through a heavily forested area. When they were talking about accurately handling, one of the interpretations of that word would be that when they cut the road, and when you look at the Roman roads, they cut straight roads through heavily forested areas so they could examine the roads and see that it was the straightest possible line to get to a point as quickly as possible. It it refers to the priests cutting the sacrificial animals precisely according to the instructions in Leviticus. It also refers to a stoneman or stone craftsman who would be cutting the blocks to fit in the temple walls. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you know how those massive stones, some of them weigh hundreds of tons, and they're cut in a straight line. Now, remember, they cut those with a chisel in their hands. They didn't have any kind of high-powered equipment like we have. And you can see it, and it is a perfectly straight line done by hand so that when that stone was rolled into place, it fit perfectly in the wall. And so what Paul is saying is when you start looking at the scripture, 
Make sure you're cutting it straight. Don't, don't zigzag off. Make sure you're staying with precision. To be diligent with this precision. That's revelation. Then there's inspiration. The writers of the Word of God received and recorded and accurately wrote down without any error what God said. They were inspired to record the revelation. Chuck Swindoll gives the greatest definition of inspiration. It's a long one, but I want you to listen to it. I think it's on the, on the IMAG. Inspiration is the supernatural act of God whereby he so directed human authors of Scripture that without destroying their individuality, literary style, or personality, his complete and connected thought toward humanity was received, recorded, without error or contradiction, each word being supernaturally written and preserved so as to result in an infallible document in the original writings. So let me just give you some thoughts here. Uh, the Old Testament writers talked about divine revelation. You'll see the phrase, the word of the Lord came, or the Lord spoke, or the word of God, or God said, or God commanded, over 700 times in the first five books of the Bible alone. Over 700 times. God said, God spoke, God commanded. I mean, Moses wasn't right down, you know, my mama told me one day that God said something. I can't remember what it was, but it went something like this. Moses recorded what God said. Now, how did he know what God said? God told him what he said. God told him about the garden. God told him about the flood. God told him about those events that happened. God told him about Joseph. God speaking to Moses. God said, and he wrote it down. It, it occurs 3,000 times in total in the Old Testament that God spoke, God said, or God commanded, or the word of the Lord came to someone. 2 Samuel 23, 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, and his word was on my tongue. Now, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament... 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. I want you to turn to 2 Peter 1, 21, if you would, please. And when, remember, when the New Testament refers to the Scriptures, it's referring to the Old Testament because the New Testament had not been compiled at that point. And so not all the books of the, of the New Testament were completed. And so when, it, when the New Testament writers are referring to the Scriptures or to the prophecies, they're referring to the Old Testament books that they would have heard, taught in the synagogue or in the temple. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, no prophecy, not most, no prophecy, was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. That word moved means Im, uh, impelled or pushed along or born along that, that these men, as they sat down to write, the Spirit of God moved them in the process of writing down those words. The Spirit of God worked with them as they 
work down all the delicate details of the Hebrew language where one little mark changes a word or a meaning of a word. The Spirit of God moved with them in that process. They didn't sit down and do a speed typing test. They hand wrote this revelation from God and they were moved along to do it. And that's why Paul can say all scriptures inspired by God. Not some scripture, all scripture. No prophecy came from man. Not most prophecies didn't come from man, but none came from man. But from the spirit that moved men along, Jesus said he spoke what he heard from the father. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus and speaks of that which concerns Jesus. And one of the evaluation tests you do with anybody that teaches the Bible is that the Holy Spirit never says anything or does anything consistent with the life of Christ on earth. Now, that's just basic 101. If somebody says to you, well, Jesus did this, where's that in the Gospels? If it's not in the Gospels, they say, well, the Holy Spirit revealed it to me. Well, good. So the Holy Spirit revealed to you that which is not concerning Jesus in the Gospels. That's where you build error, and that's where you build cults, and that's where you build heresy. So the Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus. He's consistent with Jesus. And 50 times in the New Testament, the Old Testament writings are affirmed by the New Testament writers. Let me just give you some references for time. Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. How How did he come up with the name Jesus? Well, Mary always liked that name when she was a little girl. No? That was prophesied hundreds of years before. You would call his name Jesus for he would take away the sins of the people. Uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, how in the world did David know about Judas? God told him. And so when Judas did what he did, when the prophecies were fulfilled, when Jesus came and fulfilled all those Old Testament prophecies, they had that insight given to them by God through the Holy Spirit as they were inspired to write down what God said. And then you come back to 2 Peter 1 and verse verse 21, but I want you to back up to verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of man's own interpretation, and no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. Because you will meet people today that say, well, that's your opinion. It's not my opinion. In fact, I was watching uh, our channel this afternoon for a few minutes, and uh, there's a guy on there that does a program called Wretched. It's really an interesting program. And so he he showed a little clip on there, so he's witnessing to this guy. He's telling him that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and, you know, there's no way to heaven but through Jesus Christ and everything. He said, so he's got this microphone. He's standing out in front of this mall or something. He says, you believe that? The guy said, no. He said, so you're saying I'm wrong? He said, no. He said, so you're saying I'm right? He said, no. He said, well, do you believe what I said? He said, no. He said, so you think I'm wrong? He said, no. He said, so I'm right? He said, no. He said, well, you think you're right. He said, no. Do you think I'm right? He said, no. 
He said, so I'm wrong. He said, no. <laughs> and that's what postmodernism has done for us. Nobody knows what's right and wrong. You know, every man does what's right in his own eyes, and there's no king in Israel, and, and there's no sense of authority in the land. And so God has spoken in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know, not hope we know, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Paul is saying, I, 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 I didn't just have a thought and go off on it. God gave not only the thought, but he gave the word. He gave the thought behind the word. He, he chose certain words for certain reasons. He wanted me to write this down in, in ways not from human wisdom, not revealed by man, but, but by the Spirit teaching me. And so if you look at 1 Corinthians 2.13, the Spirit teaches. If you'll write down by that verse, John 14.26. John 14.26, Jesus said the Spirit would teach us. In John 16, 12, the Spirit would guide us into all truth. And so what Paul is affirming is what Jesus said. The Spirit's going to teach us. The Spirit's going to guide us into all truth. And this is what Paul said that God has done with him as he's writing these letters to these churches. These were not opinions. These were not isolated individual revelations. That's where cults are birthed. The, the key is that God inspired the words and the words have meaning. That not just the thoughts of scripture are inspired. I, I had a person a number of years ago say, you know, I, I just don't believe in the, I don't believe that the Bible is literally true. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. And so I said, so how do you believe he did it? He said, I don't know. I said, well, let's go with him then. I mean, if you don't have a better idea, let's go with him. Well, I, I, I don't believe in, I, I don't believe in this. Or I don't believe that the ax head swam or that the donkey talked. I said, man, you've not been in a Baptist church long enough. <laughs> I've met donkeys that talk all the time in Baptist churches. <laughs> See, it wasn't, wasn't just the thoughts. God said, uh, it wasn't like God said, Jeremiah, prophesy. Kind of run with it for a while. He told Jeremiah what to prophesy. Now, he, he did not violate Jeremiah's personality. He didn't violate... Jeremiah's mind, but he moved. The Spirit of God came upon those men and moved in them that as they wrote, they wrote down not just the thoughts, but the very words and concepts that God wanted to be communicated. Words matter. Bishop Westcott said, Thoughts are wedded to words as necessarily as soul is to body. Here, here's why that's important because some people say, Well, I don't believe the Bible's literal. And, and there are times when the, the Bible is not painting a literal picture, but the Bible is literally true. Okay? Does it, you understand the distinction? 
There are times when the Bible's not painting a literal picture. There is some allegory in Scripture. There's poetry in Scripture. Uh, so what, what he's trying to communicate, and what I, I guess what I'm trying to say to you, is you can't have thoughts without words any more than you can have music without notes or math without numbers. You can't have math without numbers. Well, let, let's see. Uh, what numbers would come up with four? What's four? What are numbers? You got to have numbers. I mean, everything that is digital is numerical. <laughs> you know, the music on your CD is not music. It's all numbers. <laughs> and those numbers gel together and make music. You got to have notes to have music. You got to have numbers, have math. You got to have words to communicate thoughts. And we do not sit around and meditate on our navels and hope that God will somehow speak to us. God has already spoken, which means... And don't let this scare you, which means that the tenses of verbs matter. It means that the mood, the voice of the text matters. It means whether it's past, present, or future, whether it's aorist tense or not aorist tense, those things matter in trying to discern what God is saying in his word. That if you change a word, a mood, or a voice in the scriptures, you can change the whole meaning of that word. And I've read commentators that have tried to do it, that have tried to say, this is not really what it says, but when you look at it in the original languages and you see the mood, the tense, and the voice of those words, you understand that God had a purpose in saying what he said. God did not say, for instance, this is just a real easy example. God did not say, I was. God did not say, I will be. God says, I am. Now, that makes all the difference in the world. If God was, then maybe he's not is. <laughs> and if he's not is then what do we have to rely on? Because maybe he's not active anymore. If God will be, well, maybe sometime out there in the future, God will do something for me. But when God said, I am, he's past, present, and future. He's all tenses. I am, I have been, I always will be. I had no beginning. I have no end. I'm not limited by time or space. I'm not limited by your definitions. I am. End of discussion. When God revealed himself as the I am, and by the way, did you notice that when Jesus picked up on who he was, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the son of man. I am. Jesus said, I am. Why was he doing that? trying to get people who knew that God revealed himself as I am and say, you know, he's connecting a dot here. Uh, God said he's I am. He says I am. He must think he's God. And so when God uses these words, he's not implying something. He's not suggesting something. He's saying something very emphatic. And, and, and it's, you know, it's kind of like Mark Twain said, he said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. And, and it's real easy in the study of Scripture to get bogged down in some passage that you can't figure out. You know, like my, my favorite illustration is the guy who said to me, I was reading in Leviticus, 
And I need to know what to do if somebody goads my ox. I said, do you have an ox? No, but if somebody goaded it, am I supposed to do what it says in Leviticus? Well, brother, get an ox and find out. I just... You know, we, we, we like to argue over minutia and secondary things instead of obeying the primary things and getting caught up into sidebars and side stories instead of staying with the main story. By the way, when God wrote the Bible, he did not write it to be a systematic theology. He wrote it to be a story. There is systematic theology in it. You can get bogged down in little issues and chase things, and some people can get obsessed with prophecy or with certain aspects of the scriptures, and, and that's the only thing they focus on. And the problem with that is you're no longer inspired. You're obsessed with a facet of the Bible, not the whole counsel of God. And you need to study the whole counsel of God. So let's go to the last one. That's illumination. It's illumination. You see, that's the whole, where the Holy Spirit teaches me and helps me to understand what God has revealed and what God has illumined. John sixteen thirteen. when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Ezra, the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are great books because they talk a lot about the word of God. The book of Ezra. Have you, some of you remember Ron Dunn saying this in the early 90s. Have, have you ever been reading your Bible and all of a sudden you come across a verse and you, you've read that passage, that chapter before, and all of a sudden just a kind of light bulb comes on. Amen. And you go, wow. And your first thought is, did God add that sometime yesterday and I missed that the last time I you know what that is? God knew when you were ready for him to illumine that truth to you and to show you something that he had not shown you before. I'll give you an example. We've never made a move to a church where God did not give us a word, ever. God gave us a specific word out of the word in our study of scripture and our searching through Terry and I always felt like that God gave us a promise. When we were seven years without children and trying to have children, God gave Terry a promise two years before we had Aaron. When we didn't think we were going to have children, but God gave her a promise. It was there, but God illumined it in a a particular way in her life. When we got ready to move to Spartanburg, uh, there was a church in Texas. It was in Plainview, Texas. And the reason they call it Plainview is because you can see the Pacific Ocean from Plainview, Texas. I mean, there's just nothing. The tallest thing there is a curb. And, uh, And that church had a better office, a better staff. I mean, they were building a brand new youth building. I mean, they had it all. The money was about $15,000 more a year than the church in Spartanburg. In Spartanburg, I was going to be in a converted house that had pink elephant wallpaper on it in my office. I mean, you know, comparison to just the externals was not real good. And we began to study because both these churches were pulling at us. And, and I was reading one day and I read this verse. And you shall go to the hill country. And God spoke to my heart and said, that's where you're going. Well, I knew Plainview wasn't the hill country. I mean, it just, 
I'm not smart. I mean, I'm from Mississippi, but I didn't fall off the last turnip truck that came through town, just the next to last one. And, and I knew where I was supposed to go. And we, and we made the move, and we never doubted it. Why? Because God had illumined something to me. Now, a year before, I could have read that same verse, and go to the hill country, it doesn't mean anything to me. So my, you know, that's, I love going to the mountains. That's such a fun thing. But it had no spiritual application to my life until that moment. God will illumine his word to you and show you things that a year ago he might not could have trusted you with. And now he can trust you with that truth. Now he can reveal something to you. And, and I, will, I will tell you, God will never reveal new stuff to you until you've acted on what you've already been told. Right. Amen. I mean, you've got to act on what you already know to do. You know, not go to the Word and say, Lord, illumine something. Show me something great and new in your Word. I, I can tell you he's going to just say to you in no uncertain words, do something about the last thing I told you to do. Then I'll show you something else. Because growth is a process. And so he illumines us. The Holy Spirit's the author. And the Spirit that inspired the writers now wants to illumine the readers. That's the key. The same Holy Spirit that inspired the writers of the Scripture now is inside of you, indwelling you, and wants to illumine you as to what he was saying to them and why it was important to say it. That's why you should study your Bible with your pen in hand. That's why you ought to keep a pad or a blank piece of paper somewhere close by when you're reading the Bible because you never know what God's going to show you. And I, I keep a pen and piece of paper by the bed because typically I'll wake up two or three times during the night. That's what happens after you get older. And, you know, I, I need to make sure if I woke up because I had a thought uh, that I write it down because I'll forget it when I go back to bed. Ezra chapter 7. For Ezra, verse 10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, Ezra was born in exile. He was born in Babylon, but apparently some of the priests had gotten out copies of the scriptures and taken them to Babylon. So Ezra said it in his heart that he was going to study, to practice, and to teach. He wasn't just going to read it to try to make his mind brighter. He had a purpose in reading it. He was going to study it. He was going to practice it. And he was going to teach it. Now, illumination led to application. I, I just want to read something to you. Don't, don't worry about turning there. Actually, what I'm using right now is uh, the New Living paraphrase. But I want you to t tell you how important it is because we can't pronounce the months. And that's the reason why I've got this one. We can't pronounce the months in the Old Testament. So New Living just tells us when it is. And let me just ask you to write a reference down by that text in Ezra 7. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, now remember, Ezra studied it, read it, practiced it to teach it. In October, Nehemiah 8, 1, they asked Ezra to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which God had given to, for Israel to obey. People say, well, you know, people just made it up. Okay, uh, verse 2. So on October the 8th, Ezra, the priest, brought the book of the law before the assembly. Well, somebody noted it on the calendar. They got their day timer out and said, October the 8th, Ezra opened the book of the law. Nehemiah was keeping details on what was happening. 
And Ezra stood on a high wooden platform. That's why we have the elevated platform. Verse 9, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God of, of all the people, and chanted amen, and they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord. Verse 9, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priests, and the scribes and the Levites were interpreting for the people, said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So here's what he did. Not only did he read the word to them, he interpreted him. Ezra was an expositor. He did an exegesis of the scripture. He not only read it, he taught them what it meant. And they came under conviction. Then, that was October the 8th, verse 13. On October the 9th, now listen, watch, watch the flow here. On October the 9th, the family leaders of all the people together with the priests and Levites met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. So what did he do? The things which Paul says, the things which you have learned and heard in me, impart to faithful men who will teach others also. So what did Ezra do? He taught them and the family leaders got together and said, now, you taught us that. We need to go teach our children those truths. We need to go invest those things in our family. Help us to understand a little more about what God's saying in his word here. And so Ezra taught, they listened, the people that listened heard, and then they wanted to learn more because Ezra had studied and practiced so he could teach. So Ezra taught out of the overflow of what God had taught him. That was the inspiration becoming illumination. It became a part of Ezra's spiritual DNA. And so he began to teach the word. And then in chapter 9 and verse 3, they remained standing in place for three hours. <laughs> Y'all think we make you stand up a long time. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them. And then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. Why did they do that? Because of the reading of the law. Now, for those of us who live on this side of the cross and under grace, how much more should the word of God overwhelm us and, and go deep into our hearts? So Ezra read and the people responded to the reading of the word of God. Listen, God doesn't give us the Bible so that we'll get a big head. God gives us the Bible so we'll get a big heart. Amen. That's why God gives us the Bible. So look at what Ezra did. Here's how we're supposed to live it. How, do I, how am I going to get the most of my Bible? Look at Ezra. Just look at the verse, and it's just three simple things. Seek it out. Live it out. Talk it out. Seek it out. Live it out. Talk it out. To study the law and to practice it and to teach his statutes. How do you, how do you as a parent teach your children? How do you follow what? Moses said in Deuteronomy that we're supposed to have the word of God on our foreheads and talk about it at the gateposts and, and teach and invest it to our children. We seek it out, we live it out, we talk it out. How do you as a student impart to other students what God has taught you? You seek it out, you live it out, you talk it out. Because you can't talk out what you're not living out. And so Ezra prepared his heart so that when God gave him an opportunity to open the word and to say what the word said, there was a power behind him because God had shown him from his diligent study of the word of God what it meant. So when the family leaders came to him and said, explain to us the deeper things about this, Ezra said, I don't know. I hadn't got the newest commentary on that yet. 
You see, he took it in so he could give it out. And you can't give out what you don't take in. He took it in so he could give it out. Now, let me read these two verses to you, and then I'm going to give you three quick closing truths. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. It's not just the word of men. It's the word of God. And so that's why when you hear somebody preach or teach, you need to be familiar enough with your Bible that if they say, well, God revealed this and God said this and and God does this now and God wants to do this in these latter days and I'm a prophet or I'm an apostle or I'm I'm a whatever, when they say that, you ought to be familiar enough with the Word of God and in tune enough with the Holy Spirit that if they're not on track with what God says, there's a check that comes up in your life say, I don't believe that sounds true. And you go dig for yourself and find out. See, I don't expect you to take everything I give you, spoon-fed, well, whatever the preacher said, he must be right. I want you to be an intelligent enough congregation to go study for yourself. And if by chance I miss it, and I have before, if I do, then you go with what God says. But if you're listening to somebody that's not going with what God says on TV, on radio, at a conference, wherever you go. If you're listening to somebody who's not going to what God says, quit listening to them. Say, well, they say some good things. Well, so do crooked politicians at election time. That doesn't mean they're good. Everybody can say some good things from time to time. We're talking about a consistency of life and message. All right, three truths. Number one, because God has revealed himself... I don't have to live in spiritual darkness or ignorance. I don't have to live in spiritual darkness or ignorance. I have a Bible, and God can speak to me out of that word. I don't have to live in spiritual darkness or ignorance. Number two, because God inspired what was written, I can trust it to guide me. Because God inspired what was written, I can trust it to guide me. And thirdly, If I will open my heart and mind, I can begin to understand his plan for my life. If I will open my heart and mind, I will begin to understand his plan for my life. I want to read a little something. I I got this this afternoon uh, from a church member. And he was talking about one of his children who's about to make a a life decision on buying a house. And uh, referred to the fact that several years ago, you remember in a month of January, I challenged us to read through the book of Proverbs every month, read a chapter every day in Proverbs. And that was several years ago. And and his children took up that challenge and read through Proverbs. And uh, so his child is, is 
thinking about buying a house. And so he's trying to make sure, you know, when you're buying a house, are you making all the right decisions? Are you getting the inspections done? You just don't go on the, wow, it just looks so good. It just looks so great. I don't care whether it's right or not. I don't care if it's got termites. I just want this one. You know, you're trying trying to make sure they make all the right decisions. So this is just a part of the email. In the process of buying a house and sorting out all the little details, last week uh, he sent an email about the importance of a survey to make sure there are no property line disputes that could cause a problem in the future. My last email was the importance of the survey, and this was his child's reply. Okay, thank you. I will make sure I inspect the results. I believe it's quite fitting that I zoned in on Proverbs 14:15 last night. This verse is a great guide to the home buying process and is reflected in your email below. Would you agree? The last night was April the 14th. Said when I read, I thought that she is referring to a reference about not moving a boundary stone or something related to the land survey. But when I looked up the verse, I was impressed at the maturity of my child and their attempt to put God's word in effect in the situation that's affecting them. This is Proverbs fourteen fifteen. After he said, now you make sure you get this property line inspected. Okay, this is what the word of God does when you let it. Proverbs fourteen fifteen. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. You know what that is? That's a word from God to say, do what your daddy said. And do what I say as your heavenly father. Don't just go make a business decision. And people make all kinds of decisions all the time. And, and this was his, his reply. Wow, that's some serious biblical application. I love that email. I, I love, you know why I love it? I love it because somebody took seriously that God may have something to say about how I live my life on a day-to-day basis. Now, when God inspired Solomon to write Proverbs 14, 15, the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps, it doesn't say in the margins of any study Bible, please note if you're in the process of buying a home. But I tell you, it applies to where you're going to go to college. It applies to who you're going to marry. It applies to where you're going to live. It applies to what job you're going to take. It applies on what your major is going to be. It applies to who you date. It applies to just about every area of life. But in that moment, it applied to a specific situation in a young person's life that needed to make a decision that could be costly if they make the wrong one. And so they became prudent. How do you learn to be prudent? You do this. And how many of you have ever been walking along in a situation and thinking, well, I think I know what I need to do in this situation. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, some verse you memorized in Awana or GAs or RAs or Sunday school or Bible memory, some verse just comes to mind that you hadn't even thought about in ages. You know what that is? That's the word of God illuminating to you and saying, now, I've got something in my word about that. You may want to listen to me. That's what God's doing. So, next message, we're going to take a text, and we're just going to go through it, see how to do who, what, when, where, why, how, and just take a passage, and I'm going to try to help you understand 
how you can open your Bible and take a passage and look at, look at it and dissect it. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to do this. You do need some tools that can help you. You need to invest in a couple of tools that will help you do this. But there's nothing like, instead of waiting for somebody to tell you what it says, you learning for yourself what God has said and what is clearly revealed in the Scripture is incredible. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.